Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me see if I can... Do I do the, uh, the, the black one or the orange one? Is it the orange one? The black one? When you're a low-tech person dealing with technology, it's always a, a challenge. So I'm not uh, I'm not seeing it. So anyway, in First Peter chapter five, we have somewhat of a transition in the letter, and this is uh, Peter has been addressing the churches scattered throughout modern day Turkey, and he's been uh, teaching them primarily focusing upon comforting them as they go through trials and sufferings and afflictions in life. Persecutions as well is a, is a major theme. Thank you so much. And so what he's doing now is turning his focus uh, to the elders of the church. And the elders are certainly a, uh, are vital to the health of Christ's church. And the, and the Apostle Peter uh, now believes that it's time to address them specifically. So one of the great ministries of the Word of God and the Spirit of God is to convict us of sin. And this is something that we all need because we all still live, we have the Spirit of God, believers do, but we also still have the flesh. We have issues. We all do in our sanctification. And uh, one of the great and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. So the elders in the context of 1 Peter are called upon to continue to exercise their ministry to the church in spite of the persecution in spite of the suffering, which they themselves may be primary objects of, that even though they may be persecuted, though they may be suffering, nevertheless, by God's grace, uh, they are to remain faithful as elders within the church. Uh, because it's primarily an exhortation to us. And you get to benefit from it as you see uh, what are some of the requirements and some of the ministries of an elder within the church for those who, who may at some point in the future aspire to that, but also how to pray for the church as well as we work through this together. Let's begin by looking simply at the office of the elder in verse 1. P- 
Peter says, therefore I exhort the elders among you. Now again, he's writing this as somewhat of a circular letter. It was going out to a number of churches out in modern day Turkey. We don't know exactly how many, but uh, it was a letter that they all were supposed to read and benefit from. And he exhorts the elders among you. So within each individual church, there's the implication that there should be, by and large, a plurality of elders. That's always best. Not women. Again, there's a plurality. Uh, even the Apostle Paul, as he's going back from his, his first missionary journey and is visiting the churches that he established the life of Timothy, they thought that he might be in his late 30s at the time that Paul wrote him that letter to oversee the appointment of elders. So younger man can, can be a part of, can be an elder, but it requires maturity in character and in faith. And doctrine, obviously, as well. From verse 1, we, we now look at um, Peter's self-description as he now uh, begins to exhort these elders. And notice what he says. He describes himself as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. So he describes himself in three ways. Number one, as their fellow elder. Now I think this is very interesting because Peter started the letter by referring to himself as Christ, gifted by Christ, ministered with Christ, given authority by Christ, and he has the right to command them. He doesn't take that approach here. He says, I'm your fellow elder. In other words, instead of elevating his authority over them, he speaks to them as one who shares a similar ministry with them. I'm your fellow elder. And in this sense, you certainly see the humility of Peter as he's addressing these various elders in all these different churches. Secondly, he speaks of himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, obviously, Peter was with the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Lord was agonizing, when, when the full weight of the cross was before the Lord and he, he, he knew and his human nature began to, to cringe. It was an agony that was so powerful that it said he began to sweat as like drops of blood. An inner turmoil, a tsunami was going on within his human He was there and witnessed that. Of course, he was asleep most of the time. So I don't know how much of that he saw, but he certainly was a witness to the sufferings of Christ in that regard. And my, my uh, screen is not holding. It's kind of... It's, um, but going on from there, it's it's... It's hard to know, was he, was he at the cross when Jesus died? Now we know that after Judas led the party that arrested the Lord, John the Apostle followed back and went into Caiaphas' courtyard. And he got Peter into that courtyard. Remember, and then we know what happened in there. But he witnessed the kangaroo mock be revealed. 
You see how Peter keeps coming back to this future glory. And it's something that's a powerful theme throughout this whole letter. We see it big time in chapter 1. We see it brought up again in, in some of the other chapters. But he says to these guys, these elders, and I'm a partaker of observing that glory, but he's talking about the glory that is to be revealed. So that's no doubt referencing the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Peter is absolutely confident that heaven awaited him. Glory awaited him in the future. Either when he died and his soul would immediately go to be in the presence of Christ or if Christ came back while he was alive. I think that's a great attitude that all believers should have. Partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. It's such an important perspective that we should bring into all aspects of our life that there is glory coming. Because that's what enables us to persevere through the persecutions, through the trials, through the affliction. Glory to come. We can easily lose our way. Because life is oftentimes like a... So that the elder is to function like a shepherd in caring for God's children, for God's people. It's interesting that the word shepherd here is also the idea of the word pastor. You don't find the word pastor in the New Testament in many translations. The word pastor means shepherd. So a pastor is a shepherd and each local church should have a plurality of them. It was one of the errors of the early church in the on them to minister to them when they need it. He's to exercise oversight. To give personal care when needed. To guard them when needed. But He keeps His eye upon them to minister as beginning again in verse 2. Elders should do their shepherding and overseeing ministry voluntarily, not under compulsion. In other words, they should have the heart to do it, not because they're pressured to do it. If they're compelled to do it, if it becomes laborious, then they can become weary and disgruntled. And this is quite uh, an exhortation to elders. A lot of times, if there's governmental authorities moving against the church to bring persecution to the church, to arrest believers, to torture believers, who do they go after first? The leaders of the church. And that's what some of these churches were experiencing. And in the context, this is a this is a wake up call. Is you need to do this work voluntarily, even if you must pay a price in your ministry. You do it voluntarily, not under compulsion. You're willing to stand even if the world comes against you. So it's a powerful thing. In America, it's easy. Well, not so easy, but I mean, you don't have that threat of being arrested and thrown in jail. 
But in these churches, that was a potential risk. And yet they should still commit themselves to the ministry with a voluntary spirit, not out of compulsion. This is what Jesus did and said to Peter when He was restoring him back to this ministry after His denial. Remember Jesus said to Peter in John 21, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this was after he had denied the Lord three times. Do you love me? My sheep. Be the shepherd of my sheep. So that shepherding Christ's flock must come from a heart that loves Christ. And that's a call for elders. Because that gives us the proper heart attitude. Because love for Christ will engender love for Christ's sheep and His people. Our love for Christ will motivate us to imitate Christ's love for His sheep who is willing to die for them so that elders must experience the love of Christ in their own hearts and also return the love of Christ back to Him. And in verse 2, the next phrase is according to the will of God, and we'll come back to that. I'm going to table that just for a moment. Not for sordid gain. In other words, not for money. Not because they're greedy for gain. Well, there's, there's nothing else I can do, so I'll get a job and... So I can get paid as a, as a pastor or as a shepherd. Paul had to exhort Timothy to be free from the love of money. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And the man of God is to flee from the love of money and to be content with what God gives him. That's why Paul told the elders at Ephesus that I coveted no one's gold or silver or clothes. In other words, to serve as an elder, money must not be the motive. And yet this has plagued the church in America and many other countries sadly today through the popularity of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, which has intoxicated the minds of so many people in the ministry that it's all about the money, honey. It's all about what's the salary? What are you going to pay me? And I know that guys that go into the ministry and they, they move into a church and then they, they start looking for the next bigger church with a, with a bigger paycheck associated with it. That's not the heart. If you're in it for the money, don't get in it. So now unfortunately... With that mindset, with the prosperity gospel, health and wealth gospel, success in the ministry is determined by how many private jets you own. Who's this guy in Fort Worth? Has several private jets as a as a televangelist? Or it's how what kind of a car you drive or how much money you make? And when this breed of Ministers look upon the sheep, 
all they see is the golden fleece. That's about all they're interested in. How many times can you pass the offering plate? It's all about the cash register. Instead of feeding the sheep, they feed on the sheep. Which Ezekiel and other places condemns. Those who go into the ministry for a paycheck have the wrong motive. To be willing to do it freely. To be eager to meet the needs of others rather than to seek the gain for ourselves. The next thing he says in terms of their attitude in verse 3 is not as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Went too far. Went too short. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 13. This is what the author of Hebrews said to the church. said, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So there is authority. But the ultimate authority is shepherds, which are also pastors, not ultimate authority. There's a lot of guys in the ministry who do lord it over. I mean, they just... Because we're all sheep in one regard. Elders have a, should have a compassion spirit. The comforter. The one who comes in alongside. Not to be quick to condemn and judge, but to balance law with grace and truth with love. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Those are marks that you want. Jesus Himself emphasized to His disciples. Remember this in Mark chapter 10. He called His disciples to Him and He said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. I mean, that's a, that's a worldly mindset. The, the rulers of the world, the pagan world, they lord it over their people. And He says, and their great men exercise authority over them, dominate them. But it's not so this shall be slave of all. And then he concludes, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. See, that's the attitude elders should have. Not to lord it over, but to be a humble servant to serve God's flock. Verse 3, to be examples of the flock. To the flock. Prove to be examples to the flock. So godly elders are not to lord it over the sheep, but to lead the sheep. To walk the talk. To practice what we preach. And are we perfect? Well, of course not. We have many failings and shortcomings. I mean, we're, we're redeemed sinners like everyone else. And the bar is high for elders. And we have to take that seriously. But are we perfect? No. We're sinners like everyone else. Not perfect. Peter writing this letter 
is a great example of a fellow elder who was not perfect. He denied the Lord three times. Later in his ministry, he played the hypocrite at Antioch. He was certainly not perfect either. But the only encouragement... So all of this list of actions and attitudes are things to help you know how to pray for Alan and Mike and me as elders in this church. And that God would raise up godly elders as well. But you should pray for us uh, in this regard. That we might be godly elders and godly examples to God's flock. Paul had to exhort Timothy that in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And that's not only appropriate for elders, but for all who claim to know the Lord. Reading godly biographies is is certainly a way to encourage us from godly examples. There are many in church history as well as the Scriptures that can be used to encourage our own faith. Because this uh, this is not found actually in the King James for those of y'all who have that. I mean, what Peter is saying in verse 2 is shepherd the flock of... Shepherding, exercising authority according to the gospel of truth, according to the Word of God. And that's ultimately our authority. Nothing else. It's Scripture. It's sola scriptura. That's our authority. Well, in verse 4, Peter now turns to the motivation for elders when he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now I love this that he describes Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd. And I think that's again significant because he's he's making it very clear and reminding these elders that, that they are not the chief shepherd. That's Jesus Christ. They are under shepherds, under His authority. So the chief shepherd means He is the supreme, the ultimate, the first, the greatest shepherd. He's the only true shepherd, perfect shepherd for the church. But this shepherd metaphor is found in other places in the New Testament. Jesus referred to Himself in John as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The author of Hebrews refers to Christ as the great shepherd. And so you find that the Lord is referred to as a shepherd. Obviously, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One of the great, probably original passages behind this metaphor. But Christ is the chief shepherd because He's the one that actually bought the sheep through the shedding of His blood. He's the one who actually rules over His sheep with ultimate authority and power and defends them and saves them forever. So He's the chief shepherd. And all under-shepherds bow before the authority of the great, good, and chief shepherd. Shepherd of the sheep.
So our authority comes from Christ. We're to act in His name and we are accountable to Him. Notice what Peter says in verse 4 that when the chief shepherd appears, in other words, he's coming back and one day he will appear. And this will be a reference to the second coming again. And when he appears, at that point in time, the chief shepherd who's the only Lord of the flock, will separate out the sheep from the goats. At that time, his shepherd's rod will become a rod of iron for the goats, and he will become their judge. But he will gather his sheep that the Father has given to him, for his sheep know him and are called by name, and he knows them. So he separates the sheep from the goats. The goats will be judged and condemned. The sheep will be brought into his glory forever and ever. And that's what Peter ultimately has that glory focus in view. What will those elders receive at that time in verse 4? Peter says they will receive the unfading crown of glory. The fact that he mentions unfading is probably uh, as a contrast with the earthly crowns given to athletes in the Roman games or also to military conquerors because when they won their victories or won their athletic event, they would receive a crown, a leafy crown, bestowed upon their head. Leafy. Like made out of vegetable leaves or something like that. So if it's a leaf, how long does a, does a leaf stay in its good form and green and all plump and everything? Not very long. And even they, sometimes they use celery leaves and stalks. So they're going to wilt pretty quickly. So here you have this earthly crown of glory that is very fading. I mean, it will shrivel up. It will dry up. It will start turning brown and keel over a little bit even if they try to wear it for more than a day or two. But that was basically a picture of their glory. It does not last. But Peter says that godly elders will receive an unfading crown of glory. Now one of the the issues is, is this the only, are they the only ones that receive a crown? And that is not the case. I may need you all to help me with the next slide. Here we go. Thank you. Because actually all believers, when we get to heaven, will receive a crown. Paul mentions the crown of righteousness for both Paul and all who have loved his appearing. And James mentions a crown of life for all those who have loved Christ. So we all get crowns in a sense, whether this crown of glory that Peter is referring to is, is something special or different. You know, you could, you could argue about that. But something is, I do believe Scripture teaches is that we will all stand before the Bema Seat judgment of Christ, not for condemnation, but for commendation. And I think there will be rewards given to believers that will...
concept in there. But all of these works, of course, that we produce here that any future rewards would be based on is all the work of the Spirit of God and the grace of God in us. So though I think we will all receive crowns, Peter is trying to motivate elders to be godly, to be faithful in their ministry. Because when Christ comes back, when the chief shepherd appears, a crown of glory or all believers together, we will all respond like the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4 who take their crowns off their heads and cast them at the throne of the Lamb of God. Because He gets all the glory. Because ultimately, whatever good comes out of us, whatever obedience, whatever in us, and ultimately it's all to the glory of Christ and empowered by Christ so that ultimately we will all cast our crowns before the throne of the Lamb of God who bore the cross. Again, Peter, as does Paul, establishes a high standard for elders within the church. And we cannot live up to it apart from His grace and the working of His Spirit within us. And may the Lord bless His church character and commitment to God's Word and truth and have a heart for people to be a shepherd of God's people, to have a heart for God's sheep, that Christ might be exalted as we live out a commitment to the gospel of truth in our daily lives. And that's what we need, and that's what we pray for, even within our church. Well, Christ is the chief shepherd He's also the Good Shepherd. And as the Good Shepherd, He laid down His life for His sheep. He came to die on the cross for all those whom the Father had given to Him. Jesus says in John chapter 6 and John chapter 17. He came to take their place, to die on the cross, to be the substitute of His sheep. And that the Father endured the pain, the curse, the outpouring of the wrath of God that you and I deserve to suffer and endure in hell forever. But you see, Christ is the Good Shepherd. He did that because He's good and we are not. He did that because of His love for us. He did that because that was the only way we could be with Him forever. Our sins must be taken from us. And there is nothing that we can do to do that. So the Good Shepherd comes down from heaven, takes to Himself a second nature, a human nature. And as the incarnate Son of God, He goes to the cross and pays the price that we could never pay to save us who him and his sacrifice and to worship him because of his goodness and his atonement and his sacrifice for us.
Reflect upon the reality that one day Christ will come back and there will be a day of judgment. And without a Savior, you will stand and must give an account for your sins. And we would call upon you to turn from your sin and put your faith and trust completely in Christ to save you. And He's promised that He will come to Him and receive that free gift of everlasting life. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless and with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you.